I'm one of five boys. I'm the oldest. So there were a lot of hospital visits growing up. So you guys that have boys, you have daughters too, end up in the hospital. But there's something about boys that end up in the hospital a lot. And I remember one of my many visits to the hospital, Chester County Hospital, my parents had, my mom had taken me there because I think on this occasion I had broken my arm skateboarding. And so I was sitting in pain in the waiting room. And you know, a waiting room, an emergency room waiting room is an interesting thing because it seems like you have to wait a long time sometimes to get, to get like your pain relieved. So I'm sitting there with a, a broken arm waiting for my name to be called. And, and, and while I was sitting there, something happened. The doors, uh, the, the electronic doors swung open and I heard a man yell, a, a, a frantic yell, like, uh, like, I'm in trouble, please help me, yell. And I looked up. And he was carrying in his arms a boy about my age, probably 10, 11 years old. And that boy was like the light. I'll never forget seeing him. The life was drained out of his body. He looked a gray color, and there was blood everywhere. And I remember thinking he should go to the front of the line. <laughs> and they did. Like they, He yelled. The nurses jumped up. Doctor ran out. Doors went out, and he went right to the head of the line. I don't know what happened behind those doors. But that kid needed resuscitation. That kid needed some immediate help. Gospel restoration reminds me of of an emergency room situation. It reminds me, I've never seen this live, but have you ever seen when someone they die and need to be resuscitated. The last resort are these things. I call them paddles. You know what I'm talking about? And they place them. Have you ever seen this like on TV? They place those paddles on. I never want to go through this, and I never want to watch anybody that I love go through this. But when when someone is dying or has died, they lay those things on them, and then they pass an electric shock through them so big that the body, like, boom, and you'll hear him go, okay, now, boom, and the whole body flies up into the air, and it oftentimes restarts people's hearts. It oftentimes resuscitates. Gospel restoration reminds me of that vivid picture. This passage is filled with human and, and spiritual voltage. Gospel restoration is an incredible thing. It includes, though, some what I'll call shocking, electrifying truths. And I want to share three with you from this passage. The first one is this. Gospel restoration begins with honest self-awareness. Gospel restoration begins with honest self-awareness. What do I mean by this? What I mean by this is I'm going to pick up on something that I said last week. Gospel restoration for Peter begins with Jesus holding the mirror up in front of Peter's face, helping him to see who he really is. 
not who he wants to be, but who he really is. Failures and all. And gospel restoration begins in Peter's life when he is able to acknowledge his spiritual failure. He knows that he is one that has failed the Lord Jesus in his denials. Gospel restoration begins when we get to a place where we come to the end of ourselves and we become like, you ever wonder why Scripture has Jesus healing so many lepers? Because leprosy is a picture of us in our sinful condition. You ever wonder why Jesus is, is always speaking about his, the, 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 uh, his help towards the poor and the needy? It's because the gospel is for those who would identify as, as the scriptures teach us, as spiritually poor. You ever wonder why, why he speaks to, to those saying, blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are the poor. Why? Why would they be happy? Why are the poor? Because Jesus is saying, I came to give to sinners what they can't create for themselves. I came to do, Jesus says, for you what you could never do for yourself. And so in that way, anybody that is in Christ, anyone that's in Christ, has had to come to the realization that apart from Christ, you are not saved. That apart from Christ, you offer nothing. That you are desperate. You are hungry. You are weak. You are poor. You are a failure if you would admit it. And then the gospel is able to come to you and have this powerfully transforming effect on your life. But it begins with painful self-awareness. I said last year, last week, that, that one man, Malcolm Muggeridge, said, failure is the most creative event in life. That he said, Christianity from the cross at Golgotha has always been the sanctification of failure. Jesus came to seek and save lost and needy sinners. Jesus didn't come to people who would say, you know what, um, I don't need what you're offering. And there's a lot of people that live, especially here in Chester County, they live as if they have no need of Jesus. They've got money. They've got nice houses. They've got cars. They've got everything. This is why Jesus said it's hard for rich people like people in Chester County like us to be saved because we don't see our need. But Jesus wants to hold that mirror up and see that you're spiritually bankrupt apart from him. And when you realize that, you're able to say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I'm sick. I need a doctor. I need the surgery that you can perform in my heart. And then the gospel becomes this life-transforming treasure, right? Isn't that been your experience, church? So, so the gospel, where it starts is it brings us face-to-face -face with things that we would otherwise not like to face. It's hard to admit failure, isn't it? I, I, 
I, I struggle with it. You struggle with it. We do everything to kind of get around it. We're so good at blame shifting. We're so good at saying, I wouldn't be that way if not for. <laughs> we blame everybody. Blame our spouse, blame our kids, blame our parents. But the gospel goes to work when we can, Jesus comes and he shows you that this is who you really are. And that's what he's doing in Peter's life. And Peter's, a, we're going to see Peter is a changed man. No longer is Peter self-confident. Peter is a man who's confident in what Jesus has done. I was reading a story. I've been reading a story uh, recently. It's a book on leadership, but it's written by uh, two Navy SEALs and uh, extreme ownership. <laughs> so Matt gave it to me. But uh, I'm reading this book, and one of the things that it talks about is the importance of taking ownership. And without belaboring the story, um, he tells an opening story of being a commander of a, a SEAL Team, I think a SEAL Team 7, Task Unit Bruiser. I can't remember exactly which one. But he's a commander of a Navy SEAL unit, and they're there in the war in Afghanistan. And what happens is he's the commander, and he's leading this, and they're in a massive uh, skirmish with the enemy, but something seems to be going wrong, and he can't, he's in like the fog of war, he can't quite figure it out, but he's, he's, he's on the radio with his teams, and, and they're taking on incoming fire, they're, 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 uh, they're, in, a, they're in a firefight, and, and what they don't realize, and what he comes to realize, is that they're actually fighting one another, and in that in that skirmish, friendly fire kills a troop. It happens in war all the time. With Navy SEALs, they work hard because they work in small units to ensure that that never, ever, ever happens. It's not okay with Navy SEALs if you kill one of your own by accident. And so... Uh, as soon as they, they made their report, they knew they were sending someone in to do an evaluation. And when that evaluation is done, someone going to get fired. Someone's going to lose their job. And so he spent 48 hours tossing and turning, trying to figure out how did this go wrong? I've got to prepare a presentation to describe how and what went wrong. And somebody has to be to blame for this. And so he's examining this whole situation and how it took place, knowing that there's someone who's getting a notification, parents that are learning that their son died because of friendly fire. It's a high-pressure situation. For 48 hours, he tosses and turns, trying to figure out who is responsible for this. And so he's prepared his presentation, and he's walking into the meeting when it dawns on him that the person who is ultimately responsible is him. Was it his fault? No. Was there a lot of mistakes made? Did a, lot, did a number of people make mistakes? Yes. But he realized that the way forward was for him to stand up and say, I am the commander of this unit, and this happened on my watch, and I am responsible. I failed. And he thought that would lead 
to him being immediately fired. He stood up in a meeting and he said, whose fault was this? And his team started popping up and saying, it was my fault, it was my fault, it was my fault, it was my fault. And to everyone he said, no, you're wrong, sit down. No, you're wrong, sit down. No, you're wrong, sit down. And then he finally said, it was my fault. He didn't lose his job. He went on to rewrite the Navy SEAL training manual for how to avoid a situation like that in the future. And since that time, there have been no Navy SEALs killed in friendly fire. What's the point? The point is, you know what it's like to have to admit failure, and you resist it. And when you resist it, you don't get to the end of you don't get to the end of yourself. You don't get to that place where God can actually apply the gospel. There's people sitting in the room right now. There's hot, there's marriages that are breaking, falling apart, and and what's what's needed is for a husband to stand up, look in the mirror, and say, "I failed." I have failed. Jesus, would you help me? And Jesus will be there in a moment to pour out his grace upon you. But as long as you keep blaming everybody else, you'll never get to that place of self-awareness where the gospel actually comes in and does an incredibly powerful work in you, just like he has done in Jesus, in Peter. we got to live honestly, church. Got to live honestly. Over and over again, we fail. We must live honestly, not in fantasy. Admit our failure and your position to receive the blessing of Jesus Christ. Who wants that? That's quiet. Who wants the blessing of Jesus Christ? You, we all want it, don't we? People raising their hands. I want it. I want it. Well, then we've got to be willing to admit that we need it. And as soon as you get to that place, the quicker you can get to that place where you would say, Jesus, I need you, the quicker you'll be in a position to receive a truckload of Christ's grace towards you. Isn't that great hope? Gospel restoration begins with self-awareness. Admitting your failure is the first step of gospel restoration. Admitting your need is the first step of gospel restoration. Second, second electrifying truth. Gospel surgery is free, but... You all looked up when I said but. Gospel surgery is free, but it ain't easy. Gospel surgery is free, but it ain't easy. The process of gospel restoration is a painful one for Peter. Three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? It doesn't take a rocket scientist 
to understand that the three times that Jesus asks him, do you love me, coincides with the three times that Peter has denied him. This is about restoration. It's a full restoration. Jesus could have asked him twice. But Jesus is about a full restoration of Peter. And that's what's going to take place. Peter denied him publicly three times. Peter will confess him publicly three times and receive the restoration that only Jesus can bring. But gospel surgery is painful. It's free, but it ain't pain-free. Now, Jesus asks Peter if he loves him. In the Greek, there are three words used for love. John uses them interchangeably often. The Bible uses three different words for love. The Greeks use three different words for love. The first one is eros. That's sexual love. That's not what's being talked about here. That's not the word that he used. The second one is phileo, brotherly love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's not the word that Jesus is using here. Agape. It's another, another form of the word love that is a, a love that is rooted in, in the power and presence and person of God. That's the word he's using. Do you love me, Peter? Now, Peter, we got to go back. Do you remember Peter was the one who in front of all the other disciples, when Jesus foretold his death and resurrection, in front of all the other disciples, Peter declared something like this. If all these other chumps, if all these other dogs leave you, I'm going to stand with you. So the rest of these guys, they might be failures. They might be weaklings, but not me. And he does try to make good on it. He cuts somebody's ear off. But then he goes and denies Jesus, Jesus minutes later. Denies that he even knew him. I don't even know the man. Would have been easier for Jesus rather than asking, Do you love me, Peter? It would have been easier maybe if he'd have said, are you ever going to fail me again, Peter? He didn't ask him that. What do you think Peter would have said if, if Jesus had said, listen, Peter, let's get down to it. Are you going to fail me again? What's the answer to that question, church? Yes, he is. Go read Galatians this afternoon. Paul had to confront Peter to his face because he was losing the gospel. You're going to fail again today too, church. You're going to fail again. The question is not whether we will fail again. We know the answer to that question. The question is, do you love Jesus? Because if you love Jesus, 
The love of Christ is going to fill in all the cracks and gaps in all of our failures. Peter's self-confidence is gone. Look at, he says, do you love me? Peter's sad. It's painful for Jesus to ask him, do you love me? It's painful that he's asking him a third time. And then what does Peter appeal to? He doesn't appeal to, Peter, Jesus, you know what kind of man I am. I dragged those whole, that whole 153 net of fish by myself up onto the stage. You know, up onto the beach. You know what kind of guy I am. That was the old Peter. This Peter says what? Lord, you know everything. You know my heart. You know that I love you. If it weren't for you, I wouldn't be, it wouldn't be possible for me to love you. Now, he asks a really interesting question that I think we should understand. Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Did you see that? More than these? Who's these? (laughs) Do you love me more than, what is he talking about? Do you love me more than these? I think there are a number of options. We don't know for sure what Jesus meant. I'll tell you what I think. I'll tell you what I think it means, but I think there is one really good option. That option is, do you love me more than these? Do you know what they had just finished doing? What did they just finish doing, church? What was the activity they were participating in? Fishing. They got a boat there, they got nets on the ground, they got fish, they're they're filleting. Um, they got all the tools that go along with fishing. So, so it could be that Jesus is saying, do you love me more than what you have found your identity in? Do you love me more than these things? Do you love me more than your occupation? Do you love me more than the things you're good at? Do you love me more than, 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 the, than, than uh, the, the things that, that Jesus has, uh, in creating you, has made you good at, that you have found your identity in. It could be that Jesus is saying, do you love me more than all this stuff? Do you love me more? So, so Christ could and does say to us, do you love me more than your possessions? Do you love me more than your material things? Do you love me more than money? Do you love me more than the things that this world offers you? Church, that is a question that Jesus asks to every single one of us. Do you love me more than the things you've been able to accumulate? He's asking for that kind of love. A love that really believes that if you get Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So is there a willingness on our part to lay everything else down that we might grab hold of Jesus? It could be that Jesus is asking him that. It also could be, do you love me more than these other guys? Now why might that be a logical question? Because in front of those other guys, Peter put himself forward as a better disciple. The rest of these guys might leave you, but my love is strong. I won't betray you. I won't abandon you. In which we know that he did. So now the question comes, do you you feel like you love me more than these? 
It's all getting at what Peter's going to put his trust and his confidence in. Is he going to put his trust and confidence in the grace of God that comes through Jesus? Or is he going to put his, his confidence in himself? Jesus is way more jealous for our love than he is zealous for our works. He's way more jealous about your heart. Jesus wants your heart. And if Jesus has our hearts, he has everything else. That's gospel culture. Does Jesus have your heart? That's what he wants. But this realization is a painful one for Peter. The gospel produces, I'm saying gospel surgery is free, but it ain't easy. The gospel produces redemptive pain in our lives, not punitive pain. God doesn't bring pain into our lives to punish us, but to redeem us. All pain is painful. The law, Romans 8 can recited some of that this morning. The law condemns, the gospel convicts. The law can only ever produce self-centered tears. The gospel produces tears, but they're God-centered tears. This is the, dis- this is the difference. The gospel does produce a redemptive pain in your life as Jesus comes into your life and begins to transform you. There will be pain. But we joyfully embrace it because God's up to something good in our lives. Gospel restoration includes some electrifying, shocking truths. One, it begins with honest self-awareness. Gospel surgery is free, but it ain't easy. And then the last is gospel restoration leads to fruitful ministry. Gospel restoration leads to fruitful ministry for Jesus. That's why this is all about ministry here. This is, the, this is the ministry of Peter going forward. What does Jesus say to him after every question? Do you love me? Peter responds, yes, I love you. And then Jesus gives him some instruction. Three times. What does he say? Something like feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. He says it three different ways. Don't get tripped up on that. It's all the same. It's, it's, it's that love the church of God that is being formed by feeding them the word of God. That's what you're to do as a pastor. That's what you're called to do, Peter. This is your life. If you're going to follow me, you're going you're to feed people the word of God because the power for gospel restoration is found in the word of God. Of, of God. It's found in the gospel. We can't avoid, this is where we, we have to rec- come to recognition of this. We can't avoid mission in our lives. A gospel culture is a culture, is a group of people that love Jesus, are loving one another, but they're not forgetting that there's a lost and dying world that's broken and needs the truth of the gospel. We can't just, we can't just make this into a holy huddle, guys. We can't just make this into a place where we like to come and we like to spend time together and we like to worship Jesus together and then never ever get around to doing what Jesus has called us to do, which is to spread his fame. You were lost. You were in darkness. And someone, likely someone, shared the truth of Jesus with you. 
And, and you got to turn and do the same thing. That's how Jesus wants to use us. Shelby's got his podcast out, Real Life Loading. And one of the, one of the, uh, one of the interviews was with a, a guy who's just planted a church, Matt Smethurst. And he said something on there. They were, Shelby was doing the interview. And he said something that I love. But it rattles us a little bit. He said, if the church isn't on mission, it's just a bunch of disobedient Christians hanging out. Darn, guys. Is that what we are? A bunch of disobedient Christians just hanging out? Lord, have mercy on us. I don't think we are, but I think there's more that God has called us to be. If Jesus has your heart, you want it. You want to do what he's called you to do. I know it. The Spirit's at work in us. But we cannot forget that we're called to live on mission. Called to be ambassadors for Christ. Then, look at this. So just a couple more things. Band can come up. Let's just look at a couple more things. What about this, this Peter turning? And it's, it's almost like, okay, we, get, we see another one of Peter's warts right here. Like, Jesus says, follow me. And then they must be, at this point, I get the picture that they've been eating the, the, the fish that, that they provided for breakfast. That Jesus had that charcoal fire. They cooked the fish. They're eating it. They're having this conversation with Jesus. And, 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 and Peter is being restored and being interrogated in front of everyone. But you get the sense that not everyone is present here. Maybe they're just taking a walk down the beach. But it's clear that John is within earshot because he overhears this conversation with Jesus and Peter. And, and, and Jesus ends the, the restoration of Peter by telling him the way, the method in which he's going to die. Like, I remember when I was little, having a dentist appointment scheduled like six months later hung over my head. Can you imagine this? Here's Peter's restoration. Jesus finishes a, ma a massively encouraging moment with Jesus. And then Jesus has to end it by telling him, this is how you're going out, Peter. Just like I did. John put it in parentheses so that we would know. It's to show the kind of death that he's going to die. Why? For following Jesus, for living for Jesus, for living on mission. This is what it's going to cost Peter. And we know from Peter's writings, and we know from the other New Testament writers, that Peter made good by the power of God in his life, made good on his promise to follow Jesus all the way to the bitter end. And legend has it, we don't know if this is true, but legend has it that when they came to crucify Peter, he refused to be crucified right side up. Because he didn't feel worthy. So he said, hang me upside down when you crucify me. Because I'm not worthy to even be crucified in the same way as my Savior. Whew! 
How'd you like to have that hanging over your head for the next 30 years? We're 30 years from Peter's death. That's hanging over his head. This is the way I'm going out. When Jesus is your everything, you can handle anything. When Jesus is your everything, you can handle anything. Anything that he has called you to, you can handle if you've made Jesus your everything. That's what we learn from the life of Peter. Gospel restoration begins with self-awareness. Gospel, gospel restoration includes gospel surgery. It's free, but it ain't easy. Gospel restoration leads to fruitful ministry. And then we end with this phrase. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I have a shelf in my study that is just filled with my journals. Whole shelf of them. It's just, it's just my, if you read them, you probably couldn't even read them. But if you did read them, what you would discover is it's just one man and his attempts to follow Jesus and to love Jesus. That's all that's in it. But I'm starting to accumulate them. Got a whole shelf of them. It doesn't record every kindness of Jesus towards me. There's shelves that would be filled of things I don't even know how he was kind to me. This week I got an email. It's from my wife. Subject was my dad. What's this? My youngest had to write a college essay for your college application. You have to tell something about yourself. I didn't know anything about it. My dad. Said some things in there that really affected me. Deepest places of who I am. And I believe the essay was true. Because of the gospel's restoration power in my life. I hope, men of Brandywine Grace Church, I hope that the gospel has such restorative power in your life that you will follow him along obedience in the same direction and that the result would be you getting an email like I got. I don't say it to brag because I know what I am apart from Christ. I say it to inspire us. A lot of young people in this church. Why don't you go home and imagine what your child will write in 18 years about you? 
and pray to God that the gospel's restorative power would be so at work in you that you would leave a legacy of the fame of Jesus in someone else's life. And church, if we could all write down all that Jesus has done for us, just us, we couldn't build a library big enough to hold it. Because Jesus is everything. He's everything to us. And as this gospel comes to a close, let's remember who he is. Let's believe him and enjoy life in his name. Amen? Amen. Let's sing.